Are you a fixer? Are you someone who's always trying to do something to repair something or figure out a solution? Hey, that could be a good thing, but you don't want to be a fixer and get ahead of God or do it without God. As we continue to look at this chapter about Joab and Absalom and David and men trying to find ways to fix things, we need to rely upon God. It can be so hard not to get ahead of God, but there's great lessons for those of you who are fixers out there today, and it's today on Walk in Truth. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. And David said to the woman, verse 8, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. Uh, The NIV says, I will issue an order in your behalf. So things are looking up. It seems like David's going to help her. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, Oh, my lord, the king. The iniquity is on me and my father's house, but the king and his throne are guiltless. She may be saying here that the king was concerned that he may be doing something wrong if this was an intentional killing, allowing bloodshed to go unpunished. She may be saying, let the guilt fall on me and my family no matter what you do, king. So the king said, whoever speaks to you, bring him to me and he will not touch you anymore. She was having issues with her family, so David said, I'll protect you. Then she said, please let the king remember the Lord your God so that the avenger of blood may not continue to destroy lest they destroy my son. She's basically saying, will you make an oath before God? And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Now, when you have the king say that, man, you've got it going, right? He just made a vow before God that her son would be protected by the king of Israel. That is really what she wanted. Of course, if this was a real-life situation, she'd be thrilled, but she presses a little bit more. Then the woman said, please let your maidservant speak. Verse 12, a word to my lord, the king. And he said, speak. The woman sounds like a preacher. Just one more thing, king. Just one more thing. David may have sighed and said, okay, what is it? Speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring back his banished one. And the music plays. Dun, 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 dun. And the camera turns to David and he's like, what? This sounds familiar because Nathan the prophet came before David and shared a story and David got enraged and he was righteously indignant until Nathan famously said, you are that man. And now a woman dressed in mourning clothes says, oh, by the way, king, after I've told the story and you want to protect my son, a man you don't even know who's not part of the royal throne, we're just an average family in Israel, hey, What about your banished son who killed your other son? Will you apply the same justice and mercy and grace to your own child? Ouch. Sometimes we hear a story about some unknown person to us, and we'd say, ah, we should apply grace in that situation. Then we look at our own family dynamics, and we're not applying grace. Where we told somebody else to apply grace. I'm sure you've never done that before. 
I'm sure you've never given someone advice in a situation that's tough and difficult and then looked in the mirror and said, uh-oh, I haven't applied the same grace to people that I say I love the most and are closest to me. Convicting, isn't it? In fact, the Bible, when it says don't judge, which people often take out of context, really has two requirements, two main requirements about judgment. Don't be a hypocrite when you judge. The Bible commands you to judge, but it says to make a righteous judgment. And it says don't judge hypocritically or don't just judge a book by its cover. Make sure you have the information. You can write down Matthew 7, verses 1 through about 4 or 5 there. And that's where Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He didn't say don't judge. He just said, make sure you can see clearly before you judge. And what will give you clarity is not living by a double standard. And so she confronts the king. And she says, look at verse 13, middle of the verse. The king is as one who is guilty. Now, David thought this was just going to be an average day of giving judgment in other people's cases. It's much more convenient when we're talking about somebody else. It's much more convenient if I can hit somebody sitting next to me when a sermon is going forth and say, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Or when a sermon is being preached to, to think to yourself, I wish so-and-so was hearing this right now. In fact, I'm going to get a copy of this message and send it right over to them. Wait a minute. You might want to look at the log in your own eye first. Then you'll see clearly about the speck in your brother's eye. And so David now has been confronted. And he's probably kind of getting used to this. And so she says, she talks about the banished one that he has not brought back. And he says, for surely, for we shall surely die, 14, and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one may not be cast out from him. Is that theologically correct? Let's break it down. She says, when we die, it's like water being poured on the ground. So if you've ever taken, say you had a cup of water in your backyard, and let's say that you poured it into a plant that wasn't looking so good in your yard. That water immediately what? It starts to seep into the parched ground. Can you gather it back up in the cup? Nope. Once the water's poured out, it's gone. And once life is over, please hear what I'm about to say. It's over. If you want to reconcile a relationship, you want to make something right, God's been putting something on your heart, do it now before the water gets poured out into the ground and you can't scoop it back into the cup again. Everybody with me? Don't, don't do it at the memorial service when it's too late. Now look, God is a God of grace and we all have our regrets, but we can learn from maybe times when we did it wrong. I think the woman's saying, King, there's a sense of urgency that you get this right. And then she says, God even has ways for banished ones to get back. And I think she's correct. James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. 
We certainly are on a search and rescue mission as a fellowship, are we not? And sometimes the hardest cases we have are wayward sheep, prodigal sons and daughters, people who have sinned against the Lord and have gone out and we don't know where they are. And sometimes we've tried and we have biblical formulas for how we're supposed to do this. So it's not always that we, you know, we have to reach out the olive branch, but not everybody takes it. Now she says, now the reason I have come to speak this word to my Lord, the king, is because the people have made me afraid. She kind of goes back to her own story now, but she's saying that the nation is at risk because Absalom is supposed to be in line for the throne. So she says, your maidservant said, let me now speak to the king. Perhaps the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy both me and my son from the inheritance of God. Then your maidservant said, please let the word of my lord the king be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord the king to discern good and evil. And may the lord your God be with you. The woman cleverly returned to her story, but she kept weaving her story together with David's story so that he would be on the hook for a decision. The whole reason that Joab has put this pretend situation in her mouth was to get the king to see his own situation, to see his wrong. And sometimes when we're listening to a Bible story, God's intent is for you to see where you fit in the story. So you don't just listen to the Bible as someone who's sitting in the stands as a casual observer. In the Jewish mind, when these stories were told, they would ask, where do you see yourself in the story? You might want to just pause for a moment and ask the Spirit of God to help you to see what application you might make in your own life. Because if you don't apply God's word, you're just a hearer of the word and not what? A doer. And you become self-deluded. And that's James 1.22. And so the king answered and said to the woman, now, he's starting to get the idea that there's somebody behind this that he knows. He says, please do not hide anything from me that I am about to ask you. And the woman said, let my lord, the king, please speak. It almost seems like the tables have turned. Now he's asking for permission from the woman if he can speak. It seems like she's taking control of the conversation. You ever been there before? You thought you were in control of a conversation, and now the other person is allowing you to speak. And you're the king. Well, we'll leave that <laughs> for you to ponder. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you? You could put it this way. Is Joab behind this whole thing? And the woman answered and said, as your soul lives, my lord, the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord, the king, has spoken. Indeed, it was your servant Joab who commanded me and it was he who put all these words in my mouth of your maidservant, David's on the throne. I know it. Could hear Joab in all of this, which indicates something else. Joab probably has been having conversations with David for a couple of years about Absalom. Maybe something like this. Give the kid a break. You know why this happened. You've been through your own turmoil and God forgave you. Maybe Joab's trying to be that voice of reason and David's been difficult and obstinate. Maybe you've been the person on this side, the Joab person. Give the kid a break. Come on, man. And, or maybe you've been David. No, no, I won't. I won't. I 
Wow. Well, we'd like to think that Joab's in the right position, but you're going to find out. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. This is Pastor Michael Lance. I'm the senior pastor of Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona. Hey, I want to tell you something that's exciting happening here at the church. We have a college that we've started. We offer a two-year diploma in Christian apologetics and theology. We have two exciting classes coming up with great instructors. It's Hidden Riches of Church History from the Resurrection to the Reformation. And we have a class on Christian philosophy. How do we know what truth is? We're going to look at epistemology and some other subjects like that. Are you a working adult? Have you just graduated from high school and looking to go deeper in your faith? The tuition is very low and the instruction is excellent. And the classes start in July. Are you interested? Do you want to go deeper in your faith? Do you want to be more equipped to give answers for the hope that you have in the public square? Well, check it out today. It's thetruthacademy.com, thetruthacademy.com. Sign up today, find out all the information, and get equipped. God bless you. Maybe you've been the person on this side, the Joab person. Give the kid a break. Come on, man. And, or maybe you've been David. No, no, I won't. I won't. I won't. Well, we'd like to think that Joab's in the right position, but you're going to find out, since this message is called The Best Laid Plans, that even though Joab meant well, in the end, this is not going to turn out real well. And so, I don't know if Joab was standing behind a curtain in the king's court listening to how she tell the story, right? Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Well, he did this in order to change the appearance or the course of things. Verse 20. Your servant Joab has done this thing, but my Lord is wise like the wisdom of the angel of God. She's trying to soften things on Joab, I think. To know all that is in the earth. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation, NIV. Then the king said to Joab, get over here. <laughs> Loose translation. Come into my office. What are you up to? He said, behold now, I will surely do this thing. Now, Joab is in the verse 20, ver first 20 verses. He's the fixer. And so, so David acquiesces. He, he surrenders to it. He's convicted, and he says, okay, I'll do this thing. Go, therefore, and bring back the young man, Absalom. Okay, I hear you. Got the point. Go get the boy. But was David's response correct? Well, we're going to find out that as human beings, we, we can't see through everything. Maybe there was a reason that David's heart was in turmoil. Maybe there was a reason that David wasn't ready. It's, it's not always easy to discern timing of things. And so David's scheme is one of compromise. Joab tries to fix, David compromises. And there is a time to compromise, especially if the Lord's speaking to you. But it's not, you don't just say yes to everything and so Joab fell on his face to the ground. He was happy because he had risked his whole life and career. He prostrated himself, 22, blessed the king. Joab said, today your servant knows that I found favor in your sight. Whew, glad that you didn't deal with me harshly. Oh, my Lord, the king, in that the king has performed the request of his servant. So Joab arose. He went to Gesher, about 80 miles away from Jerusalem, and he brought Absalom to Jerusalem. He went and got the banished one. However, the king said, let him turn to his own house. Let him not see my face, 24. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. So the king said, he can come back into town. He can go back to his place, but I don't want to see him. Does that tell you something about where David was? 
David said, he can come a little closer. He can move back in, but don't have him look at my face. I'm not going to talk to him. Just he can take a step back towards reconciliation. Maybe that's a, a fair thing to do at some times. And so it tells me a lot about David's state of mind. David still had some hostility towards Absalom, or certainly he was in turmoil. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to treat him. And Absalom at this point, since he can't even look upon the king's face, is effectively removed from the throne because he's an heir to the throne, but David's not even talking to him. So now here's what happens. He's back in town. He doesn't see the king. Now all, in all Israel, there was no one as handsome as Absalom. So highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him, almost like Saul, head and shoulders above the rest, good looking. In fact, this guy had a head of hair to die for. Look at the next verse. When he cut the hair of his head, it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. Some believe this is an exaggerated number. Some believe that his hair weighed about five pounds. This dude had a do. And he was good. He was a bit of a celebrity in Israel. Pictures of him everywhere. Look at Absalom's hair. Isn't it to die for? And when he would cut his hair at the end of every year, he kept wig companies in business and toupee companies in business. And a lot of people had Absalom's hair. They who were not doing so well. This dude was popular, good-looking, celebrity status. Tell you something about Israel, doesn't it? Man, Absalom's good-looking. But what about his moral character? What about his heart? You know, we, we in our culture, we are so enamored by good looks and how people present themselves but that doesn't always tell the case of the content of the character, does it? And so Absalom was a popular dude. You get the idea that Absalom was a bit of a narcissist and had an ego as big as his hair. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of every year, you can imagine a whole group of people watching him get a haircut, bidding on his hair. I don't know how it worked. Now, to Absalom, there was born three sons, 27. They seem to have died young, as we'll find out later. One daughter, whose name was Tamar, he obviously named her in honor of his sister. The name means palm tree. She was a woman of beautiful appearance, a lot of uh, beautiful people in this family. Now, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. He had been away for three, didn't see the king's face for two, five years. He hasn't seen his dad. Five years, no communication. Five years, he doesn't look upon his dad. There's no chance for explanations, reconciliation, nothing. And here's what happens. Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. In essence, Absalom felt like he was on house arrest. So he sent a second time, but he would not come. And he was getting desperate. He was sick of the situation. So he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, as he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. He's not going to come and talk to me? Okay. Hey, boys, come here. We have a plan. See that field over there? Now, 
You have Joab trying to fix the situation. You have David acquiescing, compromising to fix it, even though it may not have been the right thing. And then Absalom doesn't get what he wants, so he sets the field on fire. This is what we call manipulation. Can everybody say that word? Manipulation. We can tend to be manipulators to get what we want to the degree that someone would even set something on fire to get somebody's attention. And it happens today. There are people who set things on fire just to get people's attention. And, uh, and of course, oftentimes nobody even knows who set the fire. And so Absalom's servants, they, they do it. They set the field on fire. Joab's crop would force him now as he goes back and tries to deal with the fire, it would force him to now speak to Absalom. Joab arose, came to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? What are you doing? There's different ways to get someone's attention, but I would not recommend this particular approach. Sometimes people feel like they're invisible. They almost have to start a fire to get our attention. And so this tells you something about Absalom's character, doesn't it? He couldn't wait anymore. And so he sets a fire. Maybe he's a bit of a narcissist. Maybe he has an entitlement syndrome. Maybe he's arrogant, insolent. And Absalom said to Joab, well, I sent for you and you didn't come. You're not returning my phone call, so what else could I do but set your field on fire? <laughs> wow. You need to get back to me when I email you, bro. <laughs> Why is there a big key mark on my car? Well, you, you won't call me back. So he says, look, I sent for you. Why have I even come here? Why have I come from Gesher, middle of 32? It would be better for me to, to still be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. If there's iniquity in me, let me be put to death. Let's get this thing over with. If I'm guilty, I'm guilty. If he wants me back, then he wants me back. And so Joab came to the king and told him about Absalom's ultimatum, because that's what it was. And he called for Absalom. And thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Absalom comes home, if you will, into the court. And the king kissed him. I think Absalom feigned submission to the king. Oh, king, thank you. And I think David's kiss was more obligatory than it was maybe emotion-based. This kiss could be a formal way of restoring somebody without the emotion behind it. What you're going to find happens next, and this will be for next time is that Absalom begins to hatch a plan. If you know the story, you know where this is going. To steal the throne away from his father. And Joab, the man who was so concerned about Absalom's position and posture and how long he had been away from the king, will end up killing Absalom. And Irony of all ironies, the way they get to him is he gets stuck on a tree branch by his big hairdo. <laughs> oh my goodness, this is thick. This, this, myth, this is stuff for the movies, baby. 
And when it happens, do you think Joab will reflect back on his fixing and think, you know, this might not have been such a grand idea. It sounded like a good plan at the time until Absalom began to try to steal the throne from his father and basically start a civil war in Israel. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. So the Bible says, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you all turn to Romans 12? I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. I'm going to leave you with these verses. I could give you many, many verses about discerning God's will, but at the end of this message, I just want to give you Romans 12, 1 and 2. I think you all know it, but here's a good reminder. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And if the worship team can hear my voice, come on up. I urge you, Romans 12, 1, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You want to know God's will, you need to have your mind saturated with his word so that you may prove or test what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The first plank in knowing God's will is surrender to him, seek him, offer yourself to him, have your mind saturated and transformed with God's word. Don't do what the world does, do what God says, and you'll be able to test and discover God's will. It's not always easy, as you can tell from this story. But did you ever hear in this story anybody pray about God's will? Did you hear in this story anywhere where a prophet came to David and said, it is now time to restore Absalom back to the royal court? Did you hear that? Did you hear anything about anybody praying, anybody getting a word from God, anybody seeking godly counsel? Nope. What you saw is fixers. People who said, this sounds like a good idea. I had a pastor one time say to me, something can be a good idea or it can be a God idea. And there's a big difference between a good idea, in quotes, and a God idea. Let's make sure that what we do is a God idea. Amen. Hey, listening family, I want to tell you a little bit more about the store at walkintruth.com, and I'd like to highlight a teaching we have up there. It's called The Anatomy of a Fall, and it's from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. How can we keep from falling to sexual sin in a culture like ours? Well, we've tackled this and put it on the radio recently. I know you can benefit from it. You can also pass it along to a friend. It's available in CD and DVD format. And you go to walkintruth.com, click on the store, and when you purchase a product, you are partnering with us to help us reach more people like you. When you buy something, it goes directly to paying for radio airtime. So walkintruth.com, click on the store, and look for the anatomy of a fall. Purchase it, pass it along to somebody else, and you'll be partnering with this radio ministry. We appreciate it. God bless you, and we'll catch you next time on Walk in Truth. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. Pastor Michael would love to hear from you. 
You can write him when you visit walkintruth.com.